We're continuing our study through the life of Jesus in chronological order through his life and ministry across all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And as we ended our study last week, we were seeing people coming from even different countries to the north of Israel to come and hear Jesus speak, to come and see him. And so we're going to pick up right where we left off last week as a crowd begins to gather around Jesus. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 5. And we're going to start in verse 1. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 1. It says, And seeing the multitudes, speaking of Jesus, he went up on a mountain. And when he was seated, you might want to underline, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them. You might want to underline them, saying. We'll pick that up in one minute. But I want you to notice that Jesus is teaching his disciples at this moment. A crowd is going to show up and the crowd is going to listen in. But Jesus' attention is on his disciples. He's addressing his disciples. It's a message for his disciples, for believers, not for the crowd. And that's going to be important. So fill that in. It's your first thing on your outline. Jesus is teaching his disciples, not the crowd. As we get into this, we're going to see that Jesus is going to lay out what it looks like to be a believer. What does it mean to be a believer? This is not a message for non-believers. It's for his disciples. This is going to be the first part of what's known as the Sermon on the Mount, one of the most famous messages, discourses that Jesus ever gives in his ministry. And it's important for us to know from the get-go that it's for believers. It's for disciples of Jesus. And he's going to start the Sermon on the Mount by addressing the character of of the believer. After that, he's going to get into the conduct of the believer, how a believer acts, how a believer behaves, because it grows out of the believer's character. Jesus does this because what we are determines what we do. It always works that way. What we are determines what we do. Our character is who we really are when no one's around, as it's been well said. In today's world, most popular psychology wants to believe that if we can change the way we behave, we will change what we really are. So if you can change your behavior, you will become something different. Jesus knows the ultimate truth is it doesn't work that way. If you want to change what you do, you have to change what you are. And the ultimate solution is becoming a new creation in Jesus Christ. We might be able to fake it for a while, but real change always comes from the inside out. And Jesus is going to address first, for that reason, the character of the believer. So Jesus sits down, which is the traditional posture of the teacher. It used to be that the teacher would sit down and everybody else would stand. And I guess at some point the masses realized that sitting is awesome, and so they changed that. But this Sermon on the Mount is widely held to appear in both Matthew and Luke's Gospels. It's considered to be the same thing, and we'll look at both this morning, but the evidence actually points to the two being different messages. In Luke's Gospel, we're told that Jesus delivers his message on a plane, whereas Matthew's Gospel lists the location as the mount. And the most logical explanation is that Jesus simply taught a essentially identical message two different times. If you have kids, you understand that repetition is important. Repetition is important. Repetition is important. You'll understand that. It's such a crucial message, it's not really surprising that Jesus taught it more than once. 
As we mentioned again last week, the Apostle Matthew, who was formerly Levi, used to be a tax collector under the employ of Rome, and in that job, he would have had to have the skill of tachigraphy, which was the art of shorthand notation, which meant that he could shorthand notate a conversation with someone using that shorthand technique. At a later time, he could unpack a series of symbols and letters that he would write. He could unpack it into a verbatim account of that conversation. That's what he could do. And so when we look at these two sermons, it's helpful to know that Luke did an investigation into the life of Jesus after the fact. So his account is essentially a summary, whereas Matthew would have been dictating in real time while he was there verbatim. It would be an incredibly accurate word-by-word account of what Jesus said. And that's why we're going to look at Matthew's account today. It's just a little bit more clear, in my opinion. As they're laid out, there are a few differences between them, but there's no contradictions, and that's important to know. There are no contradictions. This is a section called the Beatitudes, which you might have heard of before. The Beatitudes in Matthew are nine statements that all begin with the word blessed, or in some translations, the word happy. And in many lives, many of our lives possibly, are dedicated to the pursuit of happiness, but here Jesus is going to reveal the pathway to real happiness as he walks through the attitudes that lead to happiness. Blessed simply means you're in a favorable position with God. You are blessed. You're in a favorable position with God. These are not going to be things to do. These are going to be things to be. It's about character. It's about who the believer is, not what they do. So write this down. The Beatitudes reveal the attitudes that lead to happiness. To point out the cheesy and the obvious, they are be-attitudes. They are the attitudes that we are called to be. The be-attitudes. So let's take a look at verse 3. The first be-attitude says this. Blessed are the poor, and then I want you to underline, in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We're going to come back to that. The be-attitudes are prophetic because they tell us what each of these attitudes will lead to. They say if you develop this attitude, if you have this character, if you be this, if you are a believer, this is what the results will be. And the first beatitude is crucial because it tells us that all of the beatitudes have to do with the spirit, our spiritual condition, and our spiritual attitudes. The first beatitude deals with, and you can write this down, our attitude toward ourselves. It deals with our attitude toward ourselves. And I mention this because the beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount are regularly hijacked by people and distorted to make them about social issues rather than spiritual issues. While Luke summarizes this verse as blessed are the poor, Matthew gives us the full version, blessed are the poor in spirit. And that clears it up. It's a very, very different thing. So that's what happens. Sometimes people want to latch on to blessed are the poor. And what they do is they say Jesus is making a special statement that he likes poor people more. You're extra special if you have no money. And I just want to point this out. If Jesus were saying that, it would be no different to Jesus saying you're extra special if you do have lots of money. It would be the same thing because in both instances, Jesus would be saying your economic status is an indicator of your spiritual life. It would be as absurd 
to go to the opposite extreme as it would to go to that extreme. We find again and again in Scripture that Jesus is first and foremost concerned with the heart because everything flows out of that. So Jesus is not making a social comment here. He's speaking about the Spirit. And that's going to be really important to understand. So what does it mean to be poor in spirit? It means to be aware of your own spiritual poverty, your own spiritual brokenness, your complete and desperate need for Jesus, the enormous difference between us and God. The truth about the Christian life is the more you see God, the more you come to know him, the more you realize how great he is and how insignificant you are compared to him, how sinful and broken and messed up we are and how holy and perfect he is. And the result of that is an incredible gratitude that instead of simply discarding us, Jesus purchases us at the highest price, the price of his son, Jesus, and says, I did that so that I could make you my sons and my daughters. The more you understand how different God is from us, the more incredible it becomes that he has adopted us and made us a part of his family. It fills you with thankfulness. You know, I will, I can't say it any better than this, I will never, ever get over the fact that God has done that for me. I'll never get over that. The only reason we're here today, the only reason this church is here is because my wife and I cannot get over the fact that God has done that for us. We'd go to the ends of the earth for him. I'll never, ever get over what God has done for me. And when I get to heaven, the thing I most look forward to is being in a regenerated body so that I can actually look God in his eyes and say thank you. I just can never, ever get over that. And I hope that it's the same for you. You know, if being a Christian makes you spiritually arrogant or, or fills you with pride or makes you feel better than other people, then you, you don't understand the gospel. You have no idea who you are and who God is. As you walk through life with Jesus, you should and, and you will have moments, even when you've been walking with him for decades, when you are just overwhelmed by how broken you are, how much you need God. That never, ever goes away. Because the more clearly you see God, the more clearly you see yourself. And it's like the contrast just increases. And it fills you with even more gratitude towards God for his love and his kindness toward us. You just cannot be spiritually proud when you've been spending time with Jesus. He's just wonderful. He's something completely different. And his love for us is incredible. It's wonderful. Isaiah spends the first five chapters of his book in the Old Testament indicting the people of Judah and the surrounding nations. He's basically saying, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. That's his ministry for the first five chapters of Isaiah. And then in chapter six, Isaiah gets a vision of the Lord and he says, woe is me. Woe is me. He sees God and he just says, my God, woe is me compared to you. When Peter realized who Jesus was when they were on a boat in the Sea of Galilee, Peter's response was not cool. He says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Peter's response is, we, we cannot, there's no way that we can be in the same place at the same time. Me and you, there's just no way. When John the Apostle had his revelation and saw Jesus, Revelation 1 says he fell down like a dead man. Like a dead man. The Bible tells us three times that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fear of the Lord results from seeing who he is and who we are 
and you suddenly realize who we're talking to. It's mind-blowing. It's incredible. To be poor in spirit is not a depressing thing because Jesus tells us what's in store for those who truly understand their own spiritual condition. He tells us what the attitude leads to. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What a promise. If you can be honest about your need for Jesus, honest about your own spiritual poverty, you will end up with the kingdom of heaven. That's a heck of an opening line to a sermon. And that's how Jesus opens the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And, and don't ever forget that our value and our worth doesn't come from ourselves. I always think that that's, that's some of the problem with, with modern thinking is if you're down about yourself, our world says the solution is to delude yourself into believing you're awesome. And some people never get there because they're like, I know me. <laughs> The only problem is I look in the mirror and it's still me, and I know me. God says, no, your worth comes from how much I value you. Your worth comes from the fact that I made you my family. Your worth comes from the fact that I gave the most precious thing I had, my son Jesus, for you. That's a greater commentary on your value and my value than anything we could ever do or anything we could ever say. Our value comes from what God has done for us and who he says we are, who he has made us in him. It's God esteem instead of self-esteem. And I just want to point this out in a, in a culture that is obsessed with self-esteem. You know who had the highest self-esteem of all time? Lucifer. Satan. He had so much self-esteem that he decided he should be God. That's self-esteem personified. He esteemed himself so much. He said, I, I should be God. And that was his downfall. Jesus says, get your worth from your relationship with your heavenly father. What he says about you is a greater commentary on your value than anything else or anybody else. Verse four, he says, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Luke's gospel says, blessed are you who weep now for you shall laugh. And write this down. This has to do with our attitude toward our own sin. Our attitude toward our own sin. When you realize your own depravity and your own brokenness, it, it, it will move you to tears. It just will. It'll move you to grieve. It will move you to mourn for the things you've done and, and the things that you've allowed into your life and the damage that sin has done in your life. And when you understand what sin has done to our world, you'll grieve over that too. When you understand that sin has corrupted God's perfect design for the earth, that sin has corrupted our relationships, even our genetics, you grieve over that as you begin to observe that in the world around you. You won't get mad at people for doing it. You'll just grieve what sin is, what it does to our world. And this is important because it results in two things. When, when we grieve over sin, we're seeing sin accurately. We're seeing sin accurately. And when you see sin accurately, when you see what it really does, what it really is, it makes it a lot harder for Satan to deceive you into believing that sin is somehow for your benefit. When you're constantly observing sin at work in the world around you. And that's, that's all I can think about now when you see a couple arguing. All you can think is, man, there's sin corrupting our relationships. There's sin 
corrupting families. There is sin in our genetics causing sickness. There's just sin everywhere. It's deeply grieving. Secondly, when you get to that place, it causes you to long for the kingdom of God. It puts this deep longing inside of you to see the kingdom of God come to earth and for the day when he makes all things new. We're supposed to long for that. When you begin to hate sin and its effects in yourself and in the world, you're beginning to develop the same heart that your heavenly father has. It's a good thing. It's progress. It's a sign of spiritual maturity because God hates sin. He hates sin. He loves even the sinner, but he hates the sin and it breaks his heart. You know, a light-hearted attitude towards sin is always a dead giveaway for spiritual immaturity. A light-hearted attitude towards sin. What sin is and what it does to us is awful. It's awful. There's also two ways to mourn your own sin. This is on your outlines as well. You can mourn your own sin under conviction from the Holy Spirit or under condemnation from Satan. And there's a big difference between the two. Peter mourned denying knowing Jesus three times, and Jesus forgave him. Judas mourned betraying Jesus, and he took his own life. Peter was under conviction. Judas responded to condemnation. Be careful of that distinction. Godly sorrow always leads us to the feet of Jesus. If it leads you away from Jesus, it's condemnation. It's from Satan. If it leads you to Jesus, broken at his feet. That's conviction. That's the Holy Spirit drawing you to Jesus. And that's what we're talking about here. You know, later on in the life of Jesus, he's going to be at a party hosted by a man named Simon the Pharisee, and a prostitute is going to come in, and she's going to fall at the feet of Jesus. And the Bible tells us that she begins crying, literally washing his feet with her tears and drying his feet with her hair. And she anoints his feet with oil. And she is completely broken over her sin. When you read the story, she she, she has nothing to say. She has nothing to say. She's simply there because she has heard and she believes that Jesus has the ability to forgive her, to absolve her. And so all she does is she just breaks down at the feet of Jesus, broken, under conviction. She's the picture of what it means to be poor in spirit. And Jesus tells the shocked Pharisee, he says, you know, the one who's been forgiven much loves much. He says, if you think what she's doing is over the top, it's not. She's been forgiven for a lot. And so the way she loves me is with everything she has because she understands who she really is. Her spiritual poverty led her to mourning at the feet of Jesus and she left that interaction saved, forgiven, and comforted. That's how she left that interaction with Jesus. I I don't know that a more comforting song has ever been written, ever, then Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. It's probably the most comforting song ever written, in my opinion. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Verse 5, he says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And this has to do with our attitude toward others. It addresses our attitude toward others. The Greek word for meek here means gentleness, and it means enduring with patience and without resentment. I think it's an essential quality to mothering multiple children, enduring with patience and without resentment. 
But meekness is not weakness because the Greek word that they would use for meek is the same word they would use to describe a stallion, a wild stallion that had been broken and could now be ridden. The idea was great strength under control. Great strength under control. And when you understand all that, you'll understand why Jesus said of himself, I am meek and lowly in heart. Because nobody ever put greater strength under control than Jesus. The power of God submitted to the Father, completely under control, completely in submission. So too, when we come to faith in Christ, we are comforted and filled with incredible power through the Holy Spirit, limitless power. But our entire being now falls under the rule and reign of Jesus. And our goal in life now becomes submitting every part of our life under the authority of Jesus. We choose to humble ourselves before him, to make him our Lord, to make him our master, to be led by him, to serve him, and to place his will above our own. That's meekness. Meekness is not choosing to talk at half the volume that you used to before you got saved. That's not meekness, you know. Jesus has just done something so good in my life. That's not meekness at all. Meekness is suddenly saying, you know, everything I have, every bit of power, every bit of independence, everything that God's put in me, my talent, my time, my treasure, all of that now goes under the lordship of Jesus. All of that. I'm even more strong than I was before, but now my strength is under the control of Jesus. It's in submission to Jesus Christ. It's a huge insight into the way God's kingdom works because it's the complete reverse of how things work here on the earth right now. We're told to try and acquire power and wealth and respect and influence by rising above others, by beating them to the spot and pushing them down. Jesus taught his disciples, hey, if you want to be the greatest in heaven, Start working on being a servant to everybody down here on earth. That's how you climb the ladder in the kingdom of God. You want to be great there? Learn to serve people here because that's what our King Jesus Christ did. He came to the earth not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The greatest servant that ever walked the earth was Jesus Christ. Jesus says, you you want to be great in the kingdom like me? Learn to serve people like me. That's how you get there. Have any of you noticed, however, that uh, the meek are not inheriting the earth right now? Anybody notice this? Uh, Anybody looking at the world's leaders and saying, man, I'm so glad this world is under the leadership of godly and meek men. I'm so glad. Of course not. These are the laws Jesus is laying out that govern the kingdom of God. These are the laws of the kingdom of Jesus. Let me ask you, is Jesus running things on the earth right now? He's he's not. The Bible tells us that Satan is the God of this world. God held the title deed in Eden. He will hold it again. He acquired it when he rose from the dead, but he's given this period of time for people to choose to follow him before he comes back and judges the earth and begins to rule and reign. But right now, Satan is the God of this world. Jesus is telling us what it's going to be like when he comes back and takes charge of the earth. Now, are Satan's days numbered? Hell yeah. I hope you got that theologically. It's a little bit clever. You know, it's like, oh my gosh, I can't believe he said that. It's a theological statement. So it's okay. So I've, I've, I've shared a new principle here. If you can find a way to work bad language into a theological statement, it's, Jesus is completely cool with it. So, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. They shall inherit the earth. That's the destiny of those who serve Jesus. Verse 6, it says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst, and then underline, for righteousness, for they shall be filled. 
This has to do with our attitude toward God and the things of God. A true Christian can be measured by their appetites. That's a heavy statement. A true Christian can be measured by their appetites, what they crave in life. I had you underline for righteousness because in Luke's account, it simply says, blessed are those who hunger. And again, that gets distorted by people to be, oh, this is a commentary about food. It's, it's not a commentary about food. Jesus isn't saying, one day I'm going to come back and feed everybody. It's going to be the greatest food truck the world has ever seen. He's not saying that. He's saying, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Very, very different thing. So you're seeing the, the progression here. When you realize your spiritual poverty, you are saved. When you mourn over your sin, you'll be comforted by God. When you view yourself as a servant of Jesus and serve him humbly, you'll be raised up in his kingdom. And now when you've gone through that process, you come out the other side empty of yourself emptied of your pride, emptied of your ego, all that junk in your life, and now you're hungry, but you're hungry to be filled with different things, godly things, and you'll long for righteousness, the things of God, and the amazing promises. He says, I'll fill you. I'll fill you. But you cannot skip to that step. You can't say, you know what, I, I, I don't really want to view myself as being in spiritual poverty. I don't, I don't really want to mourn over my sin because I'm not ready to let some of that stuff go. I just want to be full of God. You can't jump straight to that step. You can't be filled with Jesus until you're emptied of everything else first. And I really believe some people are never filled with the good things of God because they refuse to be emptied of their pride and self and the cheap, meaningless, unsatisfying things of this world. If I get invited to a five-star meal and I stop at McDonald's on the way, hit a couple of quarter pounders, I'm not going to have an appetite when I get to the great meal, and I'm going to miss out on it. And I'm pretty sure I'm going to regret that decision later on for multiple reasons. That's the idea here, is that you cannot experience and fill yourself with the good things of God until you're empty of the cheap alternatives. You have to be emptied of those things first. When we don't have an appetite for God or his word or the things of God, it's usually because we haven't emptied ourselves of ourselves. We think we're full, but we're full with cheap substitutes. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Verse 7, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. When God's done all this in you, when you've been emptied of yourself, when you've been saved and comforted by the Lord, empowered by the Lord, filled by the Lord, you're going to be aware that you've received incredible mercy from an incredible God. And you can always spot someone who realizes they've received incredible mercy because they are merciful to other people. In this life, you and I will never need the grace of Jesus less. Have you realized that? There's no place you get to where you say, man, I just realized that I don't really need his grace anymore. I mean, I needed it sort of to get me started, but now I'm 100% pure awesome. I don't really need his grace. It's good. We never get there. The only thing we realize as we mature in Christ is that we've been taking advantage of the grace of God even more than we realized. We've needed it even more than we've realized. We were even worse off and are even more broken and sinful than we realized. That's the process of maturing in Christ. Simply put, we are merciful because we've been shown incalculable mercy. We are merciful because we've been shown incalculable mercy. We forgive because we've been forgiven. We love because we've been loved much.
Verse 8, he says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Jesus is not talking about salvation in this verse. He's not saying that only the pure in heart will be saved because then you and I have a big problem. We're all in the process of becoming more like Jesus, but the reality is that you can be saved and still allow sin to have a much bigger grip on your life than you should. I think we all know that. We all battle sin on a daily basis, but some of us battle it a little harder than others. Some of us are more in the fight. To be pure in heart is to be committed to getting sin out of your life under the power of the Holy Spirit. It's about being ruthless about living for Jesus and not giving sin a home in any area of your life. You can write this down. To be pure in heart means having an undivided heart. An undivided heart. Jesus is not one on a list of ten. He's one on a list of one. Your whole heart belongs to him. You know, many of us would be shocked to learn that even in the New Testament, after Jesus and the cross and the new covenant and the new law of grace, the Bible still makes it clear in the New Testament that our righteousness, how much we're walking with God, affects the effectiveness of our prayers. We kind of think sometimes that, okay, we're under grace now, so whether I live for Jesus with purity or not, it doesn't really make a difference. My prayers count the same. I'm just as saved as I was. It doesn't affect anything. That's not what the Bible says. James tells us that sometimes we don't get what we ask God for because we're asking with the wrong motivations. James also tells us that the passionate prayer of a righteous man accomplishes great things. He put the word righteous in there. And Peter tells husbands to be gentle with their wives so that your prayers are not hindered. The idea is that God is is looking, let's take the last example, of the husband who's being harsh with his wife and who's asking God to move, and God says, you need to go take care of something first. We don't have anything to talk about until you go take care of that. And what you learn with God is that whenever we go to God, if there is sin or something corrupting our lives, he wants to deal with that first. He wants to deal with it first. Because if this were to translate into the spiritual world, it would be like my kid coming to me with a knife stuck in his shoulder. He says, Dad, can you make me a juice cup? We need to talk about the knife in your shoulder. Ah, Dad, I know it's there. I'm going to deal with it another time. Can you just make me a juice cup? I'm so thirsty right now. There is no scenario in which I go, okay, I'm going to make you the juice cup. We'll deal with the knife later. We are dealing with the knife because it is damaging you, doing great harm to you. Sin does the same thing. So when we go to God to talk to him, when there's an issue, he's going to say, we need to deal with that. Doesn't work when we just say, nah, let's come back to that later. He never says yes to that, ever. He always wants to deal with the issue that's harming you because you're his child and he loves you. There's a direct connection between spiritual purity and the effectiveness of our prayers. There is a direct connection between spiritual purity and how much we see God work in our lives. There is a connection. In Psalm 37, David writes, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. That's a promise. And it's not a promise that you'll get whatever you want. It means that as you find everything in life in Christ, as he becomes one on a list of one, as you love him and serve him with an undivided heart, you're going to find the things that you want beginning to become the same things that he wants for you. What you want and what he wants for you will begin to become the same thing. When that alignment happens, that's when God begins to move radically in your life.
radically in your life. And you get on the same page and you, you find yourself praying for things like your marriage and God says, hey, I want you to have a strong marriage too. Praying for your kids. Hey, I want your kids to know me and love me too. God, help me to forgive this person. Hey, I want you to forgive that person. We're in harmony here. God, can you give me that Lamborghini? Ah, not so much. Not so much part of the plan. So the idea isn't you get everything that you want, but the idea is what you want begins to line up with the Father's heart and you begin to want the best things for yourself which are the things that God wants for you. That's when God begins to move in your life. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Far too often I forget that Jesus is the Prince of Peace. That's one of his titles. I'm sure all of us know people in situations that are in great conflict, and, and they're a mess And the more we see of Jesus, the more we find ourselves looking at those people in those situations saying, they just need Jesus. They need Jesus. I I can't fix that. They need the Prince of Peace. We are not equipped to handle and solve every conflict in every situation. But Jesus is. He's the Prince of Peace. And the more you see of Jesus, the more you find yourself looking at broken situations, realizing this situation needs Jesus. These people need Jesus. There's only one way to be a real peacemaker, and that's to introduce people to the Prince of Peace. Let me also just remind us that the ministry of Jesus was not defined by peace. It's not like everywhere he went, there was peace, love, and happiness and circles around campfires with guitars, right? There was massive, massive conflict that defined the ministry of Jesus. There were riots. There were mobs. There were plots to kill him, attempts to stone him. There were tables overturned. Jesus was beaten within an inch of his life and then murdered by being crucified. Hardly a ministry marked by peace. But who was marked by peace? Jesus himself. He's marked by peace. And those who walked with him and encountered him experienced incredible peace unlike any other because in peace with Jesus, they found peace with God. The peace that Jesus offers is not the peace to make everybody like you so that you never offend anybody. Hear me on this. This is a huge statement. Holiness is far more important than peace based on sin. You really need to get that. Holiness is far more important than peace based on sin. Jesus never compromised his holiness or the truth in order to be at peace with someone. Ever. He never compromised on what his word said in order to be at peace with someone, ever. Here's the principle. You can be uncompromising without being contentious. You can be uncompromising without being contentious or argumentative, just being quietly unwavering. But it's never a solution to sin or to compromise on the truth of the word of God so that you can be at peace with somebody. That's not an acceptable option. The peace that Jesus offers is for you, and it's a peace that can't be taken away from you, even if following Jesus costs you your life. It's a peace, the Bible says, goes beyond our own understanding. And the Bible says that Jesus has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Our ministry to the world is to lead people to the place where they find peace with God through Jesus. That's what it means to be a peacemaker. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. 
And then it says, blessed are those who are persecuted. And then underline, for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely. And then underline, for my sake. In Luke's gospel, I I think it's on your outline, it says this. Blessed are you when men hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and cast out your name as evil. And then you might want to underline, for the son of man's sake. Now, I wouldn't blame you if you thought that being humble and meek and serving other people and desiring what is right and living in purity, I wouldn't be surprised or blame you if you thought that doing those things would make people like you. It seems like it should. But in 2 Timothy, we have the most unpopular promise in the entire Bible. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Some, a few, Several, all, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It's a promise, but I've never seen that on a t-shirt or a coffee mug or a bumper sticker. You know, in my stack of cards I have of the promises of God, that's not in there. You know, I just need to remind myself, all who desire to live in godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Thanks for the encouragement, brother. You will encounter persecution. You will have enemies. You will be misunderstood. You will be mocked. You will be slandered. But never forget this. We have no right to expect to be treated better than Jesus Christ or the apostles. We have no right to say, I don't deserve to be treated that way. I deserve better than that. So where's the peace? Well, the peace is this. Jesus says that even when those things happen to us, we are blessed. He says you should be happy. Why? Back to Matthew, verse 12, it says, Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. And then underline, For great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. When we experience rejection for following Jesus, we're storing up for ourselves treasures in heaven. And when you understand this, you will realize that there have been men and women throughout the ages who we would view as colossal failures. I'm talking people that gave their whole lives to spreading the gospel around the world and saw three people saved, one person saved. In fact, we don't even know their names. I can't tell you their story because we don't even know who they are. We would look at them and we'd say, man, what what a failure. Your whole life is marked by rejection. Nobody responded to your message. Nobody. And those people are gonna be royalty in heaven royalty in heaven because every single time they were rejected every single time they shared christ they were storing up for themselves treasures in heaven regardless of what the response was the response in the realm of eternity to them doesn't even matter they were obedient to jesus and there's even greater reward when they were rejected now don't go out and like try and share jesus badly on purpose and think that that don't do that you know that doesn't count he's not he's going to be like you you were intentionally terrible and horrible so that doesn't count but we are going to live forever in the kingdom of jesus and and i wish we could grasp what forever really means forever the most disciplined people among us the ones who have the greatest wisdom are the ones who have the foresight to save for retirement right the last quarter of your life, last 30 years maybe. Wow, what foresight. I wish I could get there. We are going to live forever, forever, forever. We would be wise to think about that. 
We are going to live forever. Luke's gospel says that when we are persecuted, we should leap for joy because that's what they did to the prophets of the Old Testament. The real men of God who walked faithfully with Jesus and spoke the truth, even in the face of overwhelming opposition and even when no one would listen, even when it cost them their lives. Jesus says when you get treated the same way for speaking and believing the truth, rejoice because your contemporaries just became Elijah, Elisha, Daniel, Ezekiel, Samuel, and on and on. I think it's going to be amazing because some of these guys are going to get to heaven who would be viewed as colossal failures on the earth. And Elijah and all these guys are going to be there. Elijah's going to walk up and high-five these guys like they're just peers saying, my man, my man, good job. Everything's going to be turned upside down in the presence of God when we get there. It's going to be incredible. But I need to take a moment to talk about one other angle on this. Do you see where we underline specific things like for righteousness sake, for my sake, for the son of man's sake? Jesus wants us to understand that he's speaking specifically about persecution that we suffer for following him. He's not talking about having a martyr complex when someone steals your spot at the mall and cuts you off. He said we'd be persecuted, Lord. You know, he's, he's not talking about losing your job when everyone in your division loses their job. That's just the trials of life. Those things just happen. He's not talking about you getting fired because you were bad at your job. I was late three days in a row and they fired me. Probably because I'm a Christian. Probably not. He's not talking about being rejected by people because you're weird. That's not persecution. Sometimes we're just weird. And that doesn't count. So to to summarize this section, Jesus says that these are the attitudes that lead to true happiness and fulfillment. This is how you become truly happy. You realize your spiritual poverty. You mourn over your sin. You act in meekness that submits to Jesus. You hunger and thirst for righteousness. You show mercy. You're passionate about having a pure heart. You're a peacemaker. And you rejoice in persecution. And we're almost at the end here. I just want to share for a second in Luke 6, in Luke's account of this, Luke 6, 24, Luke lists four woes, and each of these woes is basically the opposite of some of these beatitudes. He says in verse 24 of Luke 6, but woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. As we look at Matthew's verbatim text, we understand he's talking about rich in spirit, because he's talking about poor in spirit. So he's saying, If you're the person who views themselves as being spiritually wealthy, you're like, I have everything I need. I don't need Jesus. I'm a great person. I'm a good person. I'm fine. I'm doing awesome. Look at how bad all those other people are. He says, if you view yourself as spiritually wealthy, spiritually lacking nothing, Jesus says, you have a reason for woe because this life is your peak. This is as good as it's ever going to be for you. And it's going to go tragically downhill after this. But for those who are in Christ... I love the truth that we're only trending up. We are only trending up. And I love that, that even as we age and death approaches and our bodies break down, we're only trending up. That's what we believe, and I love that. Then he says, Woe to you who are full, for you shall hunger. It's the opposite of Matthew 5, 6, where Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. He's saying, Woe to you if you consider yourself already full of righteousness, because you're going to end up hungry for it later on when you realize that you don't really have it and you never really did. And he says, woe to you who laugh now for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to the person who doesn't think their sin is an issue. It's not a problem. 
woe to the person who laughs about it. And this is heavy. The end of that person's story, Jesus is saying, is mourning and weeping. The person who laughs now and says, man, everything is fine. I don't have a sin issue. Come on, man. He says, it doesn't matter how confident you look. Your story's going to end in mourning and weeping. Understand that. Then he says, and I want you to underline this, verse 26, woe to you when all men speak well of you. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. For so did their fathers to the false prophets. And this verse hits close to home. You've heard me talk about it before because I'm, I'm really passionate about it. There's this idea sweeping through modern Christianity that goes something like this. If you're truly representing Jesus, then everybody will love you. They'll think you're wonderful and amazing and they'll want to be around you because everybody loved Jesus and wanted to be around him. So if anything you believe is offensive to people, then you must be doing it wrong. If anything you believe the Bible says is offensive to people, then you must be interpreting it wrong because Jesus would, would never be offensive to anybody. People love Jesus. And when your faith is based around this idea, you will change what you believe and ignore what the Bible says if it makes people like you more. Because after all, that's the real measure of what it means to live out your faith. Don't forget that everybody didn't love Jesus. There were more people shouting crucify him that weekend than there were waving palm branches saying Hosanna to the king. They killed Jesus for claiming to be God. That's how offended they were by what he taught. And he didn't back down from that. Everybody didn't love Jesus. The gospel, Jesus and the cross, are called a stumbling stone and a rock of offense multiple times in the gospel because the gospel deals with the issue of sin. And when it does, you're either convicted or you're offended. Those are really the only two responses. You're a sinner. You need God. You're not a good person. You need God. He's the only one who's good, and he wants to do a work in your life and make you his own. That's either incredible news to you or it's highly offensive. There's very, very little middle ground. But, if, but in today's culture, we're told that if the gospel we cling to is offensive, then we must be misunderstanding it. We must be doing it wrong. Just realize this, that the gospel's been offending people for over 2,000 years almost. It's not a new cultural phenomenon that people are offended by Jesus and the gospel. They were never more offended than they were when he was on the earth telling it to them. It's not a new thing. But according to Jesus, who does everybody speak well of? The false prophets. Everybody loves a false prophet who says something like, listen, whatever is true for you, that's good. It's good for you, then it must be good. Everybody loves that person. So at the end of all this is really one conclusion, I believe. And the conclusion is that believers are supposed to be the happiest people on earth. We're supposed to be the happiest people on earth. This is what we're called to be. And Jesus says, if you'll focus on being these things, you're going to reap a harvest of happiness. David wrote in the Psalms that happy is the person whose God is the Lord and whose sins are forgiven. I'm not saying life is always easy, but I'm saying for the believer... Our reasons for happiness have nothing to do with anything going on in our lives. Nothing. It's not the reason we're happy. So let's spend some time just contemplating the Beatitudes and asking the Lord maybe to show each of us what he wants to do in our lives, what attitude he wants to develop in us, where he wants us to change, who he wants us to be. Let me just pray for the rest of us. Father, thank you so much for giving us 
access to joy and happiness that is completely independent from the things going on in our lives. Thank you that through your son, Jesus, we can have a joy and a peace that can never be stolen away from us. Thank you, God, that that as we look upon you and realize what we really are in comparison to you, your response is not to hold it over our heads, but to lift us up and to make us your own and to give us your kingdom. God, we'll never get over that. We'll never get over that. It is, it is too amazing to even claim to fully understand. So God, we love you. We honor you. And we praise you and we trust you. And we worship you because you are the one and only God. You're the only one who saves. You're the only one who heals. You're the only one who restores. And you're the only one that can secure for us a future and a destiny more glorious than our minds could ever comprehend. Thank you for what lies in the future for every single one of us, God the end of death, the end of sin, and the beginning of an eternity with you in paradise, God. Thank you so much, God.